Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 105. Last week we are still in the kind of penultimate uh, week of Jesus' life heading to the Holy Land in Jerusalem, Passover week. And this particular day Jesus was teaching in the temple, preaching the Gospel, and he had chief priests and scribes elders come to him asking him by what authority he's doing these things and then he uses an analogy talk about the baptism of john uh, to kind of throw the question back on them and they couldn't answer it and jesus then very wisely says like if you can't answer the question that i'm posing to you about john which the people hold as a prophet then i'm not going to answer your question about my own authority um it's really convicting Um, And then he kind of continued the conversation with a parable about a man who had a vineyard, and um, he went away and gave, I guess you could say, responsibility to tenants to take care of it. And it ultimately led to the tenants killing the the master's son whenever the master sent the son to, to check on the vineyard. Um, and we see this analogy with how God sent his chosen people, his holy word, the Torah, then prophets, and then ultimately his son and Messiah. And this is foreshadowing Jesus' death that's coming up. Yeah. Kind of violates that social contract, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, you send your son, we're just going to kill him. You know, it's it's messed up. Did you have more? I did not. Okay. I'm going to take a moment, and you know what? I I could not even count the number of times that both of us have, in the middle of conversation, used incorrect words or said the thing you didn't mean to say or this or that or whatever. But this one, I I have to take a moment and go, you know, penultimate is like next next to last. Exactly. When I said that, I was like, that's not the right word. It should have been his ultimate week. Exactly, yeah. And sometimes I just get OCD, and I know that you love me, so I took a second to say, (laughs) just in case there was anybody listening that didn't know, let's go ahead and get them on the right track. (laughs) You the man. Did I say that? I should have started with that. You the man. (laughs) But. (laughs) All right. So, yeah. So, Jesus is in the middle of this parable. He's talking to, remember, what did we call it? I think it was the... uh, impressive group of men or something like that, right? We were trying to find a way to just, you know, this this is the people we're talking about. But but he's not done, even with this parable. He's not done with these men, but he's not even done with the parable because they actually, you know, they they, they sort of get the, the, the plain story, like the plain meaning of the text. They understand it looks like it's a bad thing. However, I mentioned in the last episode that maybe they aren't exactly... It depends on which gospel you're reading. In, in one, it looks like they totally know what Jesus is saying, and in the other one, not so much. And so let's go ahead and read. We'll continue. I think, let's see, we got Matthew chapter 21, verses 40 through 46, Mark chapter 12, verses 9 through 12, and Luke, we're going to pick up with the latter half of chapter 20, verse 15, going through verse 18. And I'm going to go ahead and read from Matthew because it really does have some extra stuff and I think some good stuff. And so we'll spend some time talking about it. You may as well hear it. So here we go. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. And let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? 
This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, just as a uh, comparison reading, if we were to go over to Luke and we looked at chapter 20, verse 16, notice when we just read Matthew, it sounded like they had no idea he was talking about them. But listen to the way Luke says it. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. (laughs) Well, they weren't saying surely not because that would somehow be an improper action against those tenants. They totally understood the tenants needed to have their heads slapped, right? They were saying surely not because they actually understood in Luke's narrative that he was speaking of them. So anyway, just want to lay that out so you can see it. Now let's talk about some of what's going on in here. So again, from Matthew's perspective, this impressive group of men didn't really make the connection that they were these awful tenants. And they answered. So we get to see a little more insight into what they thought would have been proper. The master would be within his rights to put those wretches to a miserable death. And I think last time we talked about, you know, what do you call this retribution or revenge or, you know, something like that. But even even within first century Judaism and all this stuff, okay, I'm not sure how this would have worked out in any literal way or legal way. So I think you're seeing a little bit of their emotion in the response because, you know, he doesn't have the right to just put those wretches to a miserable death, like from a legal sense. It, 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 there's a different path. But you, you can see how they think. The point is, they understood the recalcitrance of these tenants, and it made them angry. Now, again, from Matthew's perspective, they will only later understand that they're the awful tenants, but we know it because we've been reading it. Now, Luke, on the other hand, same, same group of men, I don't know if you noticed this, Samuel, but down later in Matthew, he brings in the Pharisees, but whatever, we're, we're, we're just going to ignore that until we get there. They, they, they knew exactly what Jesus meant. He, they knew that he was casting them as the bad guy, the tenants. They didn't like it. Their response, surely not. But here's the thing. I, I just want to make this point. I know we do it often, but I can't help it. It's, it's important that you see. This is another example of not replacement theology, okay? <laughs> now, remember, the original question had to do with authority within Israel. The parable is not saying, for example, you Jews have been bad tenants. I'm giving everything over to the Christians. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is something more like Israel is under new management, All you guys that have been leading the way, you've been messing it up and boom, you're out of here. And, and I mean, it's kind of funny in a way it kind of does answer their question about Jesus's authority. At the very least, you, you might infer from the text that it's suggesting that his authority exceeds theirs. Okay. But you know, whatever, uh, we can look at this a couple of different ways. There was a very real opportunity for the kingdom to begin 2,000 years ago. But that was forfeited. And a later generation is going to experience that. Okay, so that's one way of saying 
you tenants are out of here. I'm going to find new tenants, okay? Another way is to look at it and say, these particular men, or, you know, who they represent, or maybe you would say something more general, like this generation, you have forfeited the kingdom by refusing God's Messiah. So the way that we can sort of verify that one is to know that that leadership was, in fact, completely destroyed in 70 AD. And and there was new leadership. The Sadducees, for all practical purposes, ceased to exist. And everything, and I know people don't like to hear this, but everything within Judaism, okay, not everything, everything, but practically speaking, Judaism became Pharisaic Judaism. The Pharisees win the day, which is kind of interesting. Uh, But this new leadership, much like the kingdom itself, has not come into its fullness. And so I talked about Judaism already. Judaism sort of came under the new leadership of, of Pharisees and their teaching, interpretation, that kind of stuff. However, it goes beyond that. We, alive today, looking back, trying to understand the story, especially as Gentiles, uh, we're going to look and say, yeah, but the, but the new leadership was the apostles, James, the, you know, the, the apostolic leadership after Jesus's resurrection and ascension. That would be the new leadership that we would look to uh, in terms of the remnant or God's assembly or, you know, whatever, that kind of thing. Anyway, I, that was a lot. I hope that some of that was clear. But uh, anyway, let's go on. In both Luke and Matthew, Jesus uses Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, to make his final point. And, I mean, we're going to talk about it. It kind of works two different ways, or I I don't know. I only see two ways, so I would say both ways, whatever. (laughs) Whether, Whether they had gotten his meaning, like you are the tenants, or not, whether they understood that or not, the psalm is very appropriate. It fits. In Psalm 118, it's speaking of a king, which, again, you can think of that as the leadership, the authority, and God has delivered him. And so, what does that make you think of, Samuel? Um, I don't know, other than, like, delivered from enemies, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, and in the context, it was speaking uh, of David— David had been delivered from his enemies, at least many, many think it's David. Uh, And then you could bring that forward and go, yeah, and that's also going to be a picture of Jesus. He's the true king, and he is also going to be delivered through through his righteousness, whatever. Anyway, now this this king could be delivered from his enemies, from from without, or or maybe even from within Israel. And this king uh, is in some way unwanted. And he has fully and rightfully taken his place at the head, at the top. Now, tradition, again, as I said, it kind of accepts the king as David, but tradition also looks forward and thinks that this king is, it's referring to Messiah, the ultimate king. And so he continues, it's like a giant building stone that is set aside because you know what? It just doesn't fit. They think they've miscut it, or they think, you know, something. Something is wrong with this stone. Except that later, as it turns out, this stone that they've tossed aside, not useful, doesn't fit, it turns out that it actually does fit in the most important place, or the place of greatest honor. It is a perfect fit. And this I don't know. I think it evokes some other traditions of of uh, David's conception. And Samuel, have you heard about this? Where people think that David was conceived illegitimately? Does that ring any mm-hmm. bells? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what often is included? If you went back to Psalm chapter fifty one verse five, you know it it says what was what is the wording? It's like conceived in iniquity or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so they go, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, David, yeah, he wasn't even like a rightful son or something. But the point is that, that David is ultimately proven to be legitimate by God. And this happens in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you read through that story, the heir is to be among Jesse's 
sons. And because he is considered a brother, he's considered a son when Samuel selects him. If he was illegitimate, he wouldn't be Jesse's son, if you see what I'm saying. So God is like proving it or endorsing it or something by selecting him from the group. And I, I found this little note, you know, this whole thing about the stone that the builders rejected. It's, it's interesting that along the way in Judaism, like if you were reading in the Talmud or different things like that, there are a number of occasions where Torah scholars are actually referred to as builders. That's cool. So it's the stone that the builders rejected. I just think that's hilarious. I, I love that. It's a great mm-hmm. little connection. Anyway, so there's that. Now, Matthew is the only one that contains uh, an explicit verdict, right? He, he states it. Therefore, God will take the kingdom from you and give it to others. And who are these others, Samuel? What, what is the, the defining attribute of these others who he's going to give it to? Um, people who are actually going to take hold of the, the call of the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. They are going to, uh, in the vineyard analogy, they are going to produce fruit. These leaders aren't. We're going to get new leaders who will. Now, uh, again, uh, many read this verse and think, well, there you go. It's right there in black and white. God has rejected Israel. God will take the kingdom from you and give it to others. (laughs) But again, context is king. That isn't what's being communicated here at all. It's It's saying that Israel is going to be under new management, not that Israel is being rejected. It's the leadership that's being rejected. The tenants who are being replaced, not the entire vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants are the leaders of Israel. So the vineyard remains, and it's still expected to produce fruit. And then the new tenants, I'm going to go ahead and go with the sort of like the ultimate interpretation, the new tenants are the apostles, the leadership that comes of this new remnant, this new assembly. Uh, Now, uh, this is super important if you are a Jew, and this is really important information, it's really good, but it's even more important if you are a Gentile. See, and, and people often don't recognize this. In your Bible, as a Gentile, Pretty much none of the covenants or promises, etc., were made with you. Okay, you could go back and say, what about the Noahide covenant? Yep, you're right. Okay, that's why I said pretty much. But almost none of the covenants promises were made for you or with you. And this is important, including the new covenant. It is not made with you. It's made with Israel. Your only avenue to God is through Israel. And that was the point of all of Paul's letters. That's what he's trying to get across. That whole imagery of being grafted in from, again, Paul, the apostle, Paul. Samuel, I want you to read two things. One of them is from the New Testament, which people often confuse with the New Covenant, okay? But from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, read the part I've got cut out there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, new covenant. Who's it with? Israel and Judah. Okay, now let's go back to the Old Testament, the origin of this new covenant that we always talk about. This is Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one. Samuel, read that one. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Yeah. You know, we have tried to be really, really forthright, honest about those places where, hey, you know what? This seems like a contradiction in our text and things like this. Samuel, is there any contradiction (laughs) between what you read in the New Testament and the Old Testament? Sounds like a carbon copy. Yeah. They're, if not identical, they are virtually identical. They, I mean, it's, it's purposely citing Jeremiah 31, 31, and they did a good job of it. So my point is not to say, hey, if you're not Jewish, you don't, you're not a part of the story. No, not at all. It's just to say, look, you need to understand 
Judaism, Israel's continuing role in the story and how it is we relate to them. As Gentiles, we enter into the covenant through Israel. The Messiah came through and from Israel. They are the part of the story. And you don't become Israel in like the legal and and physical sense, but you do become Israel by faith, a faith like Abraham's. Just like they are a part of true Israel by faith, not by bloodline. So there's that. Important stuff. Uh, Let's see, a couple more things. This stone, by the way, is actually pretty cool. Okay, and I have to say, though, that it's not exactly in every translation, okay? Uh, But there are some obvious connections or parallels with the stone of stumbling that we read about uh, in the New Testament or the stone of offense, which is Messiah, of course, both cases. And you can read about these. Uh, One is in Romans chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. Obviously, you have to read the context around, but yeah, there's that. Uh, Similarly, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, uh, you might also make some parallels or connections with the stone that struck the image of the kingdoms in Daniel 2. That's also a pretty cool image. And then uh, we could also go back. There's a a very, very uh, close match to the terms of the text in Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Uh, the, the, the cool imagery stuff that, that, that we're talking about, the, the way it affects you is, all right, number one, if you fall on the stone, which the best way to, I think, envision that is repentance. So if you fall on the stone, Okay, you will be broken, but that brokenness is to make you better. It's to reform you in a sense. It's it's for your good. You can be remade from that. It's kind of like, you know, when somebody, like they do surgery at a hospital or, I mean, even weird examples like, oh yeah, apparently I broke my, you know, I don't know, say you broke your arm and I don't know. I didn't think it was that bad, and I kind of messed up. And when I finally went to the doctor, (laughs) they had to re-break it so that they could reset it so that it would actually be in a good place, that kind of thing. If you fall on the stone, you will be broken, but that's for your good. If, however, the other side of this, if that stone falls on you, now instead of repentance, I would suggest that that means judgment. Okay. You will be crushed, and that will be your end. And what I'm suggesting here is that unlike being broken where you recover and you're actually better, when you're crushed, there's no coming back from that. It's bad. And actually, if you wanted to read more about it, if you went to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, that whole little section is really good. Uh, Peter's take on the whole stone thing, whatever. It's just good stuff. And then, again, remember, <laughs> Matthew and Mark tell us about this impressive group of men. Uh, and we finally get that the, the parable is about them. And then, interestingly, all of a sudden, at least in Matthew's telling, the Pharisees show up. So maybe they were included all along. And we talked, you know, what we talked about earlier, maybe it's not as true as we thought it was. Or... Maybe this is just, again, sort of the differences between the Gospels and who's talking about what, where, when, and, you know, it's it's hard to say. But, of course, these the, the, these Pharisees and others, all the men, they were, they were upset. They wanted to arrest him. However, they feared the crowds. See, at the very least, these crowds, they believed that he was a prophet, and many believed that he was, in fact, the Messiah. Now, Mark says that they just kind of go away at this point, you know, these, these, this impressive group of men. But Matthew, he's going to continue kind of <laughs> driving this point home. So he's not done busting their chops. But, whew, threw a lot of stuff at you there. Uh, Samuel, why don't you give everybody who's listening a break? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a really good section, and I just wanted to add um, maybe another reinforcement on this 
misconception that people treat this parable as a defense for replacement theology. And we've seen it in teachings of Jesus in the past in his ministry. Whenever anything gets brought up concerning a vineyard, we've always said that has to do with Israel as a whole. Like, it's synonymous. Vineyard equals the nation of Israel. So in this parable, if Israel was being replaced because this parable does talk about a vineyard, then the story should say something along the lines of, like, the whole vineyard was torn down and then replanted with something else um, or new plants. But that doesn't happen. Like, the original vineyard still remains. Exactly. It's, It's the tenants, it's the leadership, it's the management who is overseeing, caretaking for the vineyard that is being changed out. That's right. Good. Good. That's, That's all it? I got. Yep. Oh. <laughs> Everybody's going, dang, more Paul coming. <laughs> but that's okay. They're going to enjoy this part. No, seriously. <laughs> Stop laughing. All right. We're going to go on to Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 10. Kind of long, but some, <laughs> some good stuff in here. And... We're going to reach a milestone of sorts. I know you can't wait to hear that. But anyway, here we go. Matthew 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. <laughs> okay. Now, remember how we've said in the past, Samuel, that a parable is designed to make a single point clear. Mm-hmm. It, Okay, it's not to say that it never, ever, ever could be used for more than one point. It's not that. But the, the general rule, the general idea behind a parable is to take a, a point that is difficult to see and understand and make it readily accessible to all to hear and understand. So we're going to go through this. And this one, boy, this one has got a lot of challenging little bits and pieces that They're going to feel like, but isn't it saying this and isn't it saying that? It's going to make it hard. But we're going to try to, you know, narrow in on what's really being communicated here, okay? Now, this is another parable of the kingdom, and it's actually uh, a repeat of sorts. If you wanted to go back and listen to an earlier episode, it's called uh, The Gospels Number 87. You can, you know, hear about us talk about it there. Uh, But in the earlier version, it's in Luke chapter 14, verses 16 to 24, in case you want to just go refresh your memory, people were distracted by the things of this world, which he did mention here. There was a very similar thing here. But Matthew adds here that some mistreated and killed the servants and messengers. That's That's a really new addition. However, given what we just have talked about, all of his interaction that's been going on with these religious leaders, we can actually see, ah, this little addition, it's a direct dig at 
the religious leaders he's talking to. So that's a thing. So we probably need to note that. Next, let's see, as we work our way through the text, we have a king. I think you're probably shocked. We're going to call that who, Samuel? Uh, God. Yeah. And then he's going to give a wedding feast. And I'm going to, well, I, what, what the heck, Samuel? What do you think a wedding feast represents? Uh, I know that there is imagery within the Messianic kingdom uh, yeah. that there's some type of meal that is served for those that are resurrected to be able to partake in the yeah the gifts of the of the kingdom yeah the messianic banquet so that's a lot like this wedding feast and he's giving this feast for his son go ahead and take a shot at it samuel who do you think that's going to be um jesus yeah and it's not mentioned in here it's sort of it's just sort of inferred in the text that there is a bride right who do you think that bride is oh boy this is a trigger <laughs> Most people would say, oh, it's the church, but it's it's whoever is, like, loyal to God, Messiah, Torah, whatever. Yeah. It's going to be those who are actually faithful, those who are imaging God, those who are easily identifiable as sheep and not goats, wheat and not weeds, and they may come from among the Jews, they may come from among the Gentiles, but... That, that's kind of a side note, because that's not really a part, or uh, it's not in view here in the parable, for whatever that's worth. We're just talking about it. And then you have the invitees generally. So you got the king, he's given a feast for his son. The invitees, generally speaking, just represent Israel, right here in this specific context. So anyway, this king, we say it's God, he sends out servants. Who do you think those are, Samuel? Uh, prophets? Yep. If we're being consistent with what we've seen before, and and it seems that consistency serves us well here, they're the prophets, they are supposed to call those who have been invited. Now, when you hear that word call in English, especially if you're like a part of the American church or whatever, that word kind of gets overused, and so I would like to suggest another word so that you understand what's being communicated. They are summoned. It, it's It's a much clearer, simpler word. It doesn't bring the confusion with it. They are summoned. And who is he summoning? Those who have been invited, which we said represents, generally speaking, Israel. But the invitees, they don't want to, I mean, they just don't seem to care. Uh, they, they, they don't want to come. Now, we know, we've been going through the Gospels, we know that this is, you know, generally true within the nation of Israel, whether we're talking about the people uh, but and, and especially if we're talking about the religious leaders, but we know that it's not literally 100% true. There are many, many people. It, we, we're at least going to use the word thousands among the nation of Israel who truly are interested. And, and it's sincere. It's real. But the the nation in a general sense does not. So this king, God, he sends more servants or other servants. And again, I think we can continue to say that they are prophets, but I'm going to go one step further and say it isn't just the prophets that we know of, like they have books named after them in the Bible. It's also going to include, very specifically, John the Baptist and Jesus. And they've been given a more explicit message. They're saying, uh, okay, in case you didn't hear, the, the calves have been slaughtered. Everything's been... Like, seriously, come to the dinner. It's time. And that, I mean, in a sense, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the message of John the Baptist and Jesus. So the dinner is ready. It's at hand. Everything has been slaughtered, cooked, come to the feast, but it's no better than last time. In fact, it's actually worse. There are some, okay, they just ignore the servants, the prophets, whatever, they're going about their business, and there is no true repentance, and that's bad, but there are others, and again, we say that they're kind of pointing at this leadership, this group that's with Jesus right now, they actually abuse and kill those who are sent to them. Now, already at this point, what did they do to John the Baptist, Samuel? Um, they killed him. Yeah. Now, true, it was Herod. It wasn't the leaders in Israel, but the leaders of Israel did 
reject him or or at the very least you could say they did not accept him like the people had okay so there's that and we know we're not there yet but where are we headed what are they going to do to jesus they're going to put him to death too yeah they're going to abuse and kill him and okay technically it was the romans who did that right I mean, there's no, there's no arguing that. That's how it worked out. But did the leadership in Israel play a, a very important role in that? For sure. Yeah, yeah. There's no question. And it's not that we want to look to either of those two groups of people and somehow blame them and punish them for, yeah, hey, you killed our Messiah. That's not what we're talking about. It's just, you know what? There are facts, and we're just acknowledging them because we want a clear story. Anyway, the symbols in this parable up to this point have all been, uh, I'm going to say, historical. They're pointing backward. But now we're going to start to see uh, a switching to the future. That John the Baptist and has been killed, and like we already talked about, oh, but, but if you include Jesus, we know that he's going to be killed. And it's going to continue that way. It's going to start to switch to the future. So the king, God, is angry and it says that he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Well, this is an amazingly accurate description of what happens to the nation of Israel about 40 years after Jesus' death. Jerusalem, their city, if you will. It's God's city, but okay, Israel's city, Jerusalem, is destroyed. The temple is destroyed, and her people are scattered. And so we are fully switching to looking at future events. And then for some reason, the king decides to switch tactics. If he can't get enough guests from the original invitees, who were they, Samuel? Um, Israel. Yeah, can't get enough guests from them. And so he's going to fill the banquet hall with anybody he could find. Now, did you notice how I said he couldn't find enough guests? If, you, if you're looking at the text, okay, I freely admit the text seems much more black and white than that. It, it makes it sound like he didn't find any guests from Israel. But we know in the story, we know that's completely not true. It's another one of those cases where, come on, it's a parable. You got to understand what's being communicated and be careful not to get too literal at the wrong points and make incorrect conclusions. We know that there were many among Israel that did accept, okay? I'm just saying, that's why I said, okay, he couldn't get enough guests, and so he, uh, how do I say this? Uh, Well, you know what? Actually, I wrote something down here, Samuel. I want you to read it. Yeah, so, so go to Matthew chapter 10, verse 11. Tell me what that one says. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Okay. Now, why did I read that? I just try, I'm just kind of pointing out something general. There are worthy among the unworthy. And we saw that. That was Jesus' ministry earlier on in the story. Now let's move forward a little bit. Samuel, read from Acts chapter 13, verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Yeah, and it's so important that we see in this, number one, Paul is continuing to pursue the original invitees. In this verse, he's God uh, that the word of God be spoken first to you. Not that he wanted to, it was necessary that he do that. He continues to speak to the original invitees, Israel. They are actually welcome. Story gets complicated. We could talk about that another day. But notice something else. Worthiness in Acts, when Paul is speaking, worthiness is a choice, and it is within your power. And again, that's some scripture that's coming like sort of from a future sense, after where we are in the story right now. Here's another one. Revelation chapter 3, verse 4, Samuel. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Again, another example of worthiness being a chosen lifestyle. 
and obviously Revelation, that's like 60 years in the future or something like that, whatever. So I'm just saying, don't don't let some of the details of the parable get you carried away to the wrong idea. We're, we're trying to follow what his real point is, okay? And so the king, God, he invites anybody and everybody. And we don't see this often from Jesus because Jesus was very, very focused on Israel and Israel alone. However, every once in a while we see him do this. He, at this point in this parable, he is actually bringing in this idea of Gentile inclusion, this thing that's going to happen after his death, resurrection, and ascension, this thing that's actually going to be spearheaded by, well, to some degree, Peter, and to a greater degree, Paul. He's bringing in anybody and everybody he can find. And it says that they gathered all who they found. And Samuel, I have to ask you, does that mean that everybody responded? No. No. They gathered all who they found, and and maybe it would be better to even say they gathered all who they found that would agree to come. Now, it doesn't say that in the text, but we know that it wasn't every single person everywhere. And so it's uh, it's hyperbole, and we need to understand what it's really saying. But notice it also says, both bad and good. Well, wait a second, Samuel? Is this saying that there are going to be people who are going to enter into the kingdom, the, the world to come, eternal life, that... They're, they're actually bad people? I mean, is Hitler getting in? What are we saying? <laughs> I think there's more than what the text is reading right now. Yeah. You're looking at the result as opposed to the potential, okay? What it's saying is that all are invited, bad or good, whether they are dregs of the earth or, I don't know, noblemen or, or whatever— both bad and good, any can choose to repent. It's very important that you see it, and it's very important, especially for this next section, uh, which, oh man, it's good stuff. We're, we're going for it, no matter what happens with the time, because we got to include it. But I have to say this out loud, Samuel. We are, drum roll, officially 75% through the Gospels, three-fourths of the way. Woohoo! Yeah. Oh, that means there's an entire fourth to go. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the last week of Jesus' life. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Obviously, there's a little that happens after that sure, week, but sure. still, it's a lot. So, sorry, what do you got in this part? A couple things. First is this both bad and good analogy. It's making me think of. Um, something that we have said in a previous episode concerning the parable of the master who was trying to get hired hands to come work for him and uh, depending on what hour of the day oh right he gets hired they they all get the same wage a talent um and we had said that that parable was trying to evoke the equality sense of the kingdom that it does not matter like what stage of life or what level of significance, whether personally, secularly, spiritually, like the entrance into the kingdom is the exact same cost to the person, uh, no matter what your status is. Yeah. And that this seems very similar. It's like it does not matter whether you are the scum of the earth or the most righteous person in the earth, like it, it still costs repentance to be able to enter. Exactly. Yeah, and that's so key. It's not about who you are or where you're at in life or any of those things. It's about what you are willing to commit to. And again, Samuel, does, does any of your repentance do the actual effective work of saving you? No. No. That isn't the point. It is that you are putting yourself under the lordship of God, his Messiah, and you are 
willing to live according to his loving and merciful instructions. It's kind of like, and I think we said this just recently, God saved, redeemed Israel from Egypt first. Then he took them to Sinai and gave them the instructions, this is how I want to have relationship with you. Mm. It's the same for us. It's all the same. So, yeah, good point, Samuel. Anything else? Yeah, the um, the part of the parable where the master of the house is going out to invite as many people that he can find and how you still reiterated that the original invitees, the extending of that invitation is still present for them uh, and that being synonymous with Israel, not being forsaken, etc. What I'm thinking about is, let's say I'm hosting a party at, and let's just say I have a, a ginormous mansion of a house and my goal, I want that house just completely packed with people to be able to enjoy celebrate have fun whatever adjective you want to insert there and i have an original target audience of people let's say friends that i want to come and let's say some of them do come but not everybody comes and if i left it at that circumstance the house would be pretty bare bones like there would there would be hardly any people there but my original goal is to pack the house so that's leads me to being like okay i need to to go elsewhere to other connections that I have, maybe those that I'm not as close with to be able to bring them in. Um, I don't know if you're seeing the parallels there, but I'm just getting this picture that God wants as many people as possible into the kingdom, eternal life, etc. And of course he wants his chosen people, Israel there, but if, if they're not responding to it, then he wants to pack the house with the next people up in line. Uh, so <laughs> I just <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to throw that out there, too. Yeah, yeah. And in as we're talking about this parable and all the things to talk about, that's, ex- that's exactly the kind of, of view that's, that's being painted. Now, of course, if we go back to Abraham, we know that that was part of the original story. The fact that, you know, we had the Tower of Babel followed by Abraham, and the whole idea was... God was, in some sense, setting aside a great portion of humanity while he focused on, you know, quote-unquote, the fix through Israel, Abraham and Israel. But ultimately, why was he working with Abraham and Israel? Because it was supposed to bring all of humanity back into reconciliation relationship with him. So, yeah, it's a great picture. Anything else? I'm good. All right, I love this next little part, and we're going to make it fit in this episode, whether it does or not. Here we go. (laughs) Matthew chapter 22, verses 11 to 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Paul, I'm going to pause and go up to my wardrobe and see if I can find any wedding garments, because I'm feeling a bit nervous. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. By the way, I'm not going to waste the time doing it, but there's a great joke that ends with, many are cold, but few are frozen. Someday I'll tell you that one. But anyway, let's go on. So so there's this king, again, it's God, and he comes in to inspect the guests that have been invited to this wedding feast for his son. Now, we have, as we've already talked about this, we're suggesting that it's it's completely open. It's a possibility that there are both Jews and Gentiles at the feast at this point. I would actually go further and say, it's totally obvious that there are, but whatever. You can just say, look, it seems possible. Now, remember, the original call or the original summons was to Israel. 
but then it went out to all Gentiles. And at least at, as far as we had been reading at that point, there didn't seem to be any kind of obvious filter for them. It was, it was just presented as, hey, if they're a person, invite them in. Come on in, right? But now we have this guy inspecting the guests. This king, God, he sees a particular man. Maybe he's a Jew, maybe he's a Gentile, but we don't know, whatever. He notices that this particular man, okay, while he's inspecting the guests, he notices he has no wedding garment. Samuel, what do you think the wedding garment represents? While I was reading it, I had no idea. <laughs> well, from the context of this parable, it would be very difficult to just, like, come up with an idea. Totally admit that. However, through the course of Scripture and a bunch of additional writings outside of Scripture, this is actually quite obviously faithful obedience to God's will. This is man's righteousness, okay? So the wedding garment, uh, it's repentance. It's good works, even. You could say stuff like that. And so this king... God wants to know how he got in without a wedding garment. And then, you know, part of you might be going, well, didn't he just have his servants go bring everybody they could in, bad or good, right? <laughs> but remember, the bad or good was who was being invited. It, it, it was potential, not result or outcome. And so this particular man he responded to the invitation, but he was found to fall short of the expected criteria of a guest. Another way to say it is that all are invited to the kingdom and eternal life, but there is something required of you. You must have the appropriate dress or covering, and that is a lot of words we could put in here. Repentance, good deeds, obedience, faithfulness, loyalty, etc., whatever. If you show up unprepared, you will not be accepted. Now remember, nobody's talking about perfection. Nobody's expecting you to like literally be perfect like Jesus, okay? But it must be obvious. There must be an obvious faithful, loyal pursuit of him and his will and his ways in God's eyes, the way God would judge it. Again, your deeds don't save you. Your righteousness doesn't save you. They merely identify you or distinguish you as a faithful one. And so I'm thinking, this is another one of those points in the podcast, Samuel, important advice. Don't accept the invitation if you're not willing to dress the part. If you do, your future is Gehenna. That's what's being described here in this parable, weeping, gnashing of teeth, all that. Uh, you could potentially look even further out to the lake of fire, but people argue a lot about what the lake of fire represents. So, you know, whatever. The point is, here's the easy point. It's not going to be good. If you outright reject the invitation, well, that one's kind of easy. You know what's coming. But if you accept the invitation in some manner within yourself, at least in, in your mind, you are accepting the invitation. But if you do that without repentance, you're living in false hope. Remember, this is one who accepted the invitation. He showed up. So it's another one of those moments of self-reflection. We all have to enter into occasionally... Are you this guy? Am I that guy? Samuel, are you the guy? Have you gotten the invitation? Have you accepted the invitation? Are you willing to show up? But have you refused to dress appropriately? It's a very difficult question, but, but good for us to really examine ourselves. So now, if you're thinking, you're hearing all this, you're looking at this and you're going, man, I don't know, this somehow feels kind of unfair or mean or cruel or something. Well, Jesus offers one 
final summary that's actually pretty helpful. He says, listen, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I'm going to say, you know, we read from the ESV, whatever, it's a translation. We think it's a pretty good one. There are others technically that I like better, but this one, it it reads a little better for, for most people. But I think right in this instance, this particular translation, this particular particular language, it isn't really helpful. I'd like to say it a different way because I think it paints a clearer picture. And that is this. Many are summoned, but few are elect or become elect. And another way to say that is you may get the invitation. You may even accept it. But few actually dress the part. They don't respond in faithful obedience. Just as every human is, there's there's an inherent image of God in every human. We also know, because we actually live around humans, including ourselves, we know that there is something different. There's something extra. There's something more where you must pursue being in his image. Image. There's something to be attained, something to be pursued. Well, being elect is similar in that it's not by bloodline, right? It's not, hey, I was born Jewish. No, that that isn't it. It's not according to anything that is outside of your control. You have a role. You must pursue it. You must attain it. And so, hate to end on a potentially perceived bummer, I actually think it it should be quite motivating and encouraging. You know, there is something for you to do, a role for you to play, and you need to seek it with everything you've got. But I could get how some people would, you know, they'd kind of think, well, geez, that sounds hard, or a downer, you know, or whatever. But I, I think... It's just important that we say some of these things out loud. So there you go. What do you think, Samuel? I think it's good. Um, I did want to ask, um, and this maybe this is just my brain, but maybe other people are thinking it too. This part of the parable where the man shows up who doesn't have a wedding garment on, literarily within the parable, where we should not treat this as there are going to be circumstances where someone somehow squeaks by and gets into the kingdom before getting found out that they don't belong there or being <laughs> casted out. But rather, right. it's like a, let's see, like a, a mental state where the person believes that they are in one kind of condition with accepting the invitation and they think that they're good. And then whenever the veil is lifted and they enter into, you know, the eternal realm, whether that's the grave or the kingdom in the world to come, they realize, oh, crap, like I was I was actually wrong. Like I I didn't have the wedding garment on at all. Uh, It should be treated more like that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a rude awakening. And, you know, I mean, I don't know what anyone's future is. I'm not the judge of anyone, okay? However, I I think that it is actually reasonable to look around at churches all over America, potentially all over the world, and say, you know, there's a bunch of you that think that you're in because you've accepted some simple, easy story, and, and you're just... You're just living a passive life of sort of, it's it's really nothing more than mental assent. Yeah, I think there's a God. I think there's a Messiah. I think he died for people, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'm in. But you're, you're just passive. You're not actually imaging God at all. And, and I think that that is potential trouble for people. I, I mean, again, I'm not the judge. Maybe God's got a way to work that all out and it's all going to be fine. I just don't think it's worth the risk. I think that Scripture has a lot that would suggest that there's really something required of you, and I, th- I think we need to take it seriously. So, yeah. Anything else? That's it for me. No way. We're done? <laughs> 
Hey, we're right. only like two minutes over. I know. I thought we were going for like a, a two-hour episode or something. <laughs> no. Well, that's good. All right. Well, I said every harsh thing I can think of, so I think we're done. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. Please feel free to send us any comments or questions you may have at okidokimos at gmail.com. And until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.